HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program has been brought to you by Cider Week New York City, happening November 6th through 15th, 2015. For more information, check out ciderweeknyc.com. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. I'm Greg Blaze, host of Cutting the Curd. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I am your host, Joe Campanelli. Uh, I am excited for the show today. Uh, But before we get started, I just want to let you know, um, if you enjoy In the Drink, you can always listen to us on iTunes um, and please subscribe. That would be fantastic. Uh, Or you can listen to previous episodes on Heritage Radio Network's website, um, HeritageRadioNetwork.org com slash in the drink uh and when you don't uh find me uh here as hosting in the drink you can always find me at one of our restaurants where i serve as the beverage director um our restaurants are delanima lartuzzi lapicho and the wine bar and fora um we recently also just closed up for the summer at altalinia um where we uh served a bunch of great wines frozen negroni and uh, some delicious champagne, including Ruinar champagne, and uh, that 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 takes us into our uh, our guest here. Uh, very excited to have the chef de cave from Ruinar, one of the greatest uh, houses and certainly the oldest champagne house. Um, Frederic Panayotis is here in house with us uh, at In the Drink. Welcome to In the Drink, Frederic. Thank you very much. Bonjour. Bonjour. What does it mean to be a chef de cave? Uh, it is. Uh, it, it sounds very, uh, very fancy. Um, I know a little bit about what you do, but it seems like also something a little bit mysterious. Tell us about uh, what, what your job actually is. Well, basically, it's to be um, the guardian of the temple of the house, meaning you are responsible of um, with the team obviously uh, of the taste uh, you know on, of the Rino champagnes keeping keeping the style um, I would say also preparing the future I think this is very important uh, to understand as we are in a in a business where you uh, 
prepare wines for your successors. You know, you build, uh, you you inherit from uh, the legacy of your um, predecessors, but you also build the uh, build the one for the uh, the ones who will be taking over one day. So uh, that's that's um, the way I could summarize the job. Well, it means that uh, on a daily basis, you work with nature. Uh, you work with the grapes, you work with, uh, with the vines, so you have to be aware of what's going on during the year. Um, one of the most important moments would be um, the harvest, which took place like a month ago mm-hmm. now, um, where you, you know, it's still like in, in a couple of weeks, the, the whole work uh, in one year of the vineyard is transformed into wine, and that's, what, that's the raw material you're going to work with to uh, blend the wines. So I've always understood the chef de cave to be someone more who works inside the winery, who's blending the wines. How do you work with um, with the vineyards, and how, how how is harvest such an important time for you? Well, it's obviously you want to uh, you want to anticipate uh, the harvest because based on on the um, cycle of the year, you know, every year is different. We're on a we're in a region where. Uh, no year is like another. It's probably true in many, many vineyards, but we do, being on the northern side, one of the most northerly vineyards um, in Europe, there are some great differences from one year to another. So in a warm year, um, you might not take the same decisions as in a cooler year because the, 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 the balance of the grapes might be a bit different. So you have to anticipate that. Um, and obviously during harvest, you have to be um, fairly quick. You have to take the right decisions when... You have to pick the right uh, varieties in the right place at the right time. And, and it's not always the same from one year to another. So you have to monitor that. You have to uh, see the progression of the maturity. Um, like this year, we've been very, very happy with what we've done. We've had um, very stable parameters during the whole harvest, meaning that we choose the good places to start and we choose the good places to keep on and the good places to finish. Um, I obviously speak a lot with uh, with Italian producers, and it seems like all over Italy and in many places of France as well. 2015 was like a pretty uh, great vintage. Everyone seems much happier and less stressed than they than were last year. Than yes. last year, this time. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> last year, what what we call a challenging vintage, which is probably a lousy, in other words, uh, it was a difficult one, and certainly no vintage made um, at Ruinard. This year was. Uh, a bit disappointing in terms of quantity. We were like 20% down compared to what we expected. Uh, but quality-wise, it was, it was very, very good. Um, we had a very um, dry season, and that's, you know, took care of uh, the disease. So we harvested very healthy grapes. And then a good maturity levels. Acidity is just a tad lower than, than usual, but not, you know, nothing to worry about. And we've just started to... Uh, go through most of the wines from this year as a you know first approach and um they taste pretty good so yeah we can expect uh crafting uh Don Ruinard vintage this year hopefully great uh well we'll all look forward to that um and how do you look at uh the position of of your job at the helm of obviously the the oldest champagne house the history that that you have um maintaining the the history and the tradition while also adjusting either to modern tastes or to uh, factors that are outside of the public taste? Well, we first we are a team. You have to understand that. So it's the decisions, we take them together. Um, but, um, well, you have a little bit of pressure, but in Champagne, who hasn't has pressure, right? There's even pressure in the bottle, so uh, that's not a problem for us. Um, I don't think it's... 
I don't, I mean, I don't think about it. I don't think about it this way, like having a kind of a pressure. It's just like we enjoy what we do. You know, we work the job we do. We do it with a, a lot of passion. Uh, we don't count the hours. We, we're happy to go, happy to go working every day. Happy. Uh, we're super excited when it's harvest, extremely excited when it's time to uh, work on the base wines and blend them together. Um, we, you know, we've all worked quite a few years uh, in the industry. Uh, and so, you know, I think we we are taking um, we are taking good decisions. I, I mean, it shows in the wines. We've had some very good results, um, you know, like in the past and now recently. And I hope it'll be the same in the future. But that doesn't mean we don't change things. Uh, what we want to do when we talk about the non-vintage, especially, is is always go for more purity and more um, more freshness, more elegance. So that's that's because it's really the style of the uh, of the uh, Renard Champagnes, driven by the Chardonnay. And as far as our Dorinar, the Prestige Cuvée, is concerned, uh, the idea um, is to uh, increase that intensity, the, the toasty character, which is very, very specific uh, in this 100% uh, Chardonnay, this, this Blanc de Blanc uh, vintage champagne. And for that, um, five years ago, uh, we decided to change the, um, the way the wine ages in the bottle. We, we switched from crown cap to uh, cork. So this is, in a way... It's very interesting. In a way, it's going back to tradition because that's the way all the champagnes were um, bottled before for the second fermentation. There was no crown cap until the 60s. But the, the, the decision we took was based on 20 years of experimentation that were started way before I started mm-hmm. because I joined the company eight and a half years ago. So you see how um, people before you like sort of paved the way and then you benefit from their experience and then you build the future. I might, you know, those bottles, I hopefully I will see them because I hope to still be there in 2022 when the vintage Don Winner 2010 is released. Um, but hopefully later on, that's the way all the, all the Don Winner will be. Right. And so Don Winner spends nine or 10 years on the lease. Is that accurate? Um, between eight and 10. Eight and 10 years. For the, um, for the uh, Blanc de Blanc. I mean, for the Don Winner Blanc de Blanc. And uh, it can be one or two years extra for the uh, Dorina Rosé. Okay. And when you have the crown cap on, I imagine that is a completely or mostly anaerobic environment, right? There's no or very little oxygen getting in, but the cork might allow for a little bit more. And correct me if I'm wrong, but since you have the lees in the bottle, that is creating a little bit of reduction in the bottle. And um, so it's protecting the wine in a way. I need to correct a few things okay, on that. Okay, great. I love this. Great. <laughs> um, actually, the, um, the crown cap allows some oxygen in, mm-hmm. but you can regulate it by the type of um, gasket that is used. So it can be more or less uh, per- permissive to oxygen. All right? Um, so we used to work with like low permeability because we tend to work in a gently reductive way at Renard. We like, I think those toasty character uh, are really um, are really coming from that uh, type of um, aging. Now the cork, the cork allows less oxygen on the long term. Not at the beginning. At the mm-hmm. beginning, it has oxygen in, into it. But on the long term, let's say after seven years, it tends to be um, globally uh, allowing less oxygen inside compared to the crown cap, and which is why we decided to go back to core. Interesting. Okay. It also depends on how you store the bottles. If you store them lying on the side, like it's you know it's supposed to be, um, oxygen goes directly from the outside through the or the side of the cork or the crown cap into the wine and, and allows for a little bit of. Uh, oxidation gentle oxidation but gentle oxidation of the wine now if you riddle the bottle and put them upside down 
with the uh, deposit next to the crown cap or the cork, then the, uh, those leaves of uh, yeast will actually act as a buffer and, and eat the oxygen and basically stop the maturation process. Wow. So if, on the, if you have it in Sir Point, I guess it would be yeah, called totally, Point, exactly. totally upside down and the yeah. leaves are at the top, it just protects and no more oxygen. Very, very right. little. Exactly. That, see, this is great. Uh, something that uh, I completely did not know at all. Uh, so I, re- I really appreciate you, uh, you sharing that. Um, I, I wanted to switch over just for a moment um, because Ruinar is one of the champagne brands that I find that wine lovers really, really love. Sommeliers really love. Even in this uh, world where we are being exposed to so many more grower champagnes, um, I find that uh, my Somalia friends, me, me included, uh, Ruinar is one of the non-grower champagnes that, that we keep going back to. Maybe, maybe Ruinar and Bilkar Samon are like the two that, that we love. Um, why do you think, what, what, what is it? Why do you think that is? I was going to ask you the questions. What, <laughs> <laughs> well, what's different between what you guys do and some of the other, uh, I mean, you're not a, a very large house, right? No, uh, we are not. But, um, well, I think maybe the style, I mean, I like to think that the style uh, and, and the, you know, the taste of our, of our champagnes, um, makes that people happy and they like to come back to us. It's definitely a particular style. The fact that we are, um, going for what I like to call aromatic freshness, you know, non-vintages, especially. This is something really we, we, we work on a lot. And we also try, I, I will quote uh, the person who took over the company in 1946 after World War II. Um, the gentleman was called uh, Bertrand Mur, and uh, he was from the family, the Ruinard family, in, and he started with nothing. He had 17 hectares of vineyards from the house. Uh, the stock was down to um, like 800 cases of champagne in the cellar There was was left from the World War II. Um, and uh, he's the one who picked the Chardonnay because he liked, he liked the freshness. And as he told me once, because I met the guy, uh, he told me, I like my champagne from 9 a.m. until 9 a.m. the next day. <laughs> Meaning that for him, non-vintage champagne especially had to be, in a way, um, accessible, uh, drinkable. Of course, with a lot of elegance, with a lot of uh, sophistication and some complexity, but it's, you know, you can have everything uh, if, if you work well. So this is something that, and being born in Champagne myself, that's the way I see Champagne as well. Something that, you know, a drink that is great for celebration, uh, is great to go with food, is great at any moment of, your, of the day and of your life, maybe. So we, we tend to work hard on uh, getting the right balance, uh, you know, and that starts from the blending process. To, to make wine that are very pure, very elegant, very fresh, but also with a very uh, creamy, fleshy palate that I think uh, appeals to wine lovers. And, and I guess that's also maybe why Sommelier um, loves us. Also, we are not in, in terms of distribution. We like to be in, in um, fine retail stores, mm-hmm. uh, nice hotels and restaurants, not that there won't be any mass distribution of Winner. So I think that also, uh, you know, is a way to, to um, see that we are quite exclusive. And so people like to, you know, um, like to, 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 to find us. I understand. And so what were the factors that led to, just going back to that history after World War II, it's so interesting how Rinar was maybe on the verge of complete... Uh, oh, it almost disappeared. It being disappeared. Yeah. How, how did it get rebuilt? Uh, other than this guy who clearly liked to drink champagne a lot. <laughs> well, it took a lot of time. I mean, it's, you know, he was... Uh, 
uh, actually the guy had to to find partners for the distribution and that's why it explains something Renard uh, has the oldest history as you mentioned we were the first officially um, established champagne house in 1729 and one year after champagne got uh, the special allowance from the king to bottle wine because prior to that bottling wine in champagne was not legal meaning there was not officially uh, any champagne you know, being or any champagne house because you, you just couldn't sell it um, uh, what was I going to say I'm sorry I lost it um, oh, yeah, so um, uh, in, in terms of rebuilding so we have that old history but since the house almost and, and so at the time I'm sorry uh, Rina was exporting 90% of its wine to you know mostly in Europe even to the U.S. as early as uh, 1830 for the first time, and then 1870, in the 1870s. Uh, but in 1946, with only two customers left in Paris, um, Mr. Mur uh, worked on the domestic market. And that explains why, as opposed to many famous champagne houses, Renard is still very, very uh, dominant uh, in the French market. We, we, 50% of our wines, even more than that, 55% of our wines are sold in France not outside. So we are slowly rebuilding the uh, international fame of the house. Okay. And that's, that's super interesting. I mean, on that note, we're going to take actually just a very quick break um, and we'll be back uh, with more. Victor's Distillery is a proud sponsor of In the Drink and HeritageRadioNetwork.org. At Michter's, our passion is making the finest whiskeys possible. When you only make small batch and single barrel whiskeys like Michter's does, your whiskey has to be perfect. No detail is too small. From careful attention to the wood used in the construction of our barrels, to lower barrel entry proof before heat-cycled aging in advance of exacting chill filtration. And no whiskey gets bottled until Michter's master distiller says it's just right. Michter's cost-be-damn, taste-is-everything attitude is apparent in every sip of its smooth, rich whiskeys. Is it worth it? A lot of spirits lovers seem to think so. Food & Wine magazine called Michter's the best American whiskey. Bon Appetit said, it's amazing. And the Wall Street Journal had one special word for Michter's. Phenomenal. For more information, visit michters.com or simply visit your favorite bartender or retailer and ask for Michter's. All right, we are back on In the Drink. <laughs> we have the chef de cop from Ruinar Champagne here in the house with us, Frederic. Welcome, welcome back. Um, I did want to move our discussion to um, the uh, conversation about sustainability. Champagne is a region that is uh, notorious, notoriously uh, bad when it comes to sustainability. I've heard stories about... Bad? Uh, yeah. Actually, I think Champagne is probably the leading region in the world. When it Maybe comes in the past. In the past, we've been bad. I mean, I, we've, I've heard like, stories of uh, garbage from Paris right, and right, the vineyards. Right. That was until the 70s, uh, even 80s. Yeah, but it's you can still see some of those... Uh, 
effect, but it's you know this is long gone, um, and it's true that we we had to get a few wake up calls, a serious wake up calls, and that uh, made the um, made the region uh, change quite a few things in terms of even you know laws to make sure that those things won't happen in the future. Uh, Champagne has been quite preeminent, and that thanks to the CIBC, mm-hmm. the uh, interprofessional body um, of Champagne, that has that has um, that has um, studied uh, the champagne that has seen champagne as, as a global industry and see how it could reduce its uh, uh, impact on green gases emissions. And what's interesting uh, on this is that it, uh, um, contrary to what people think, um, if you viticulture out of a hundred percent impact on, on green gas emissions, viticulture is only about eleven percent. And winemaking is only about 9%. So together, you only have like 20% of your green gases emission there, as opposed to, let's say, uh, packaging and shipments that can go up to 35%. So if you want to be sustainable uh, or, or reduce your green gases emissions, uh, the impact on working on like reducing your packaging, reducing you know, the weight of the package and stuff like that will be way more efficient than reducing, you know, uh, you, you, your green gases emissions in the vineyard. I mean, you have to work on all the targets, uh, but they are, it's, it's easier to have a big impact uh, on packaging, for instance. And so this is uh, a few things we've done uh, seriously at Winar, um, uh, what we call the e- eco-conception of the, of the packaging, like making sure that there is a double life, that everything is uh, recyclable, that you use elements that are... Also, um, you know, like the papers or everything comes from sustainable forests and stuff like that. And uh, and just to give you an idea, um, th- there's a, a scale from one to ten uh, on like uh, it's called the index of mm-hmm. eco-conception. Anything below seven won't is not allowed to be developed. Uh, and and actually, the last packaging we've done is nine point two out of ten. So it's it's not like you know we can always aim for the best, uh, but we've we've progressed immensely. Just in that field. Now, in terms of viticulture, there's a few interesting things that, uh, as well. Um, 75% of our vineyard is um, has some uh, cover crop. Um, we um, we uh, use um, sexual confusions uh, in the vineyard. That's mm-hmm. a good way to uh, to um, reduce the uh, use of uh, insecticides uh, because we, we we're in the northern vineyard. We do have problems with powdery mildew, downy mildew, botrytis, especially botrytis, and moth are actually notorious to be responsible for uh, bringing botrytis. If, if you have the moth uh, putting some eggs and then the caterpillars will actually eat some of the grapes, and, and that's a that's a, a, an entry le- a point for the botrytis during uh, during harvest. So if you reduce the moss uh, and you reduce you know the eggs, and then do, you will have less botrytis. And one of one of the good way uh, to reduce the influence of moth is to prevent them from uh, mating. So what you do is like in the in the um, springtime, you put pheromones in a little plastic uh, container in in the uh, in the vineyards, but you have to be to do it on a large scale. And, and those pheromones will confuse the male. They won't be able to find the females because they are saturated with, you know, the whole field is saturated with pheromone, and that's usually how they find females. So they won't be able to mate, and so female won't lay any eggs. So that's, that's it's, you know, it's been quite efficient. Um, what I like about it is, like, you have to work... <laughs> You can't be working alone. You have to work with the other growers. Mm-hmm. You have to work on a village or even on a region scale to make it efficient. So, so it really like pushes the other people 
uh, to go into that system and have that mentality for the future. And so you'd say that the, this problem with the moths and uh, and uh, botrytis or downy mildew, powdery mildew, those are kind of the, the most uh, severe risks that you that you guys face in the vineyard. Right. And then dealing with those in a sustainable way um, are those are kind of the most important things. And, and there are ways to do it sustainably. I mean, I've been really happy to see how many uh, champagnes I've been tasting recently that, that have been made in a more organic or, or sustainable way. And uh, it seems like uh, more often than not that the, the newer producers uh, are doing it. And so when you're taking such a holistic approach, especially being an established producer, I'm sure that that's making quite an impact. It does. It does. And, and we wonder, as we say, you know, if, if you're a region and have maybe five or six people that mm -hmm. are leading that, but they are very small um, and they might be the best in the world being in terms of sustainability. It won't change the whole picture. But if the whole region changes um, its, you know, it, its habits uh, to a certain level, then the impact is, is way bigger. And that's what we want uh, in Champagne. And, and as, yeah, as one of the uh, you know, leading house, but we're not the only one, uh, yeah, we definitely have to you know, be like an example for the other ones. And you think this is the future in Champagne? There's no choice. Yes. It's the future for, every, for all of us. So, you know, and, and as, as the Champagne region, I think we represent a lot of values. You know, peop I mean, the world Champagne is just magic. So we have to be, yeah, we have to be the best in the world, no doubt. And can you explain what the CIVC is and how you work with them? The CIVC is the, um, so the interprofessional body of Champagne. It has a few missions, including uh, one is well known, which is the protection of the name Champagne. It's also uh, keep tracks of like uh, the ownerships of the vineyards and the shipments. Uh, and, and so there's some legal stuff and administrative stuff. But it also has a technical department uh, in viticulture. Um, environment mm -hmm. and uh, analogy and um, so what we can what we do quite often is we work with them like we say okay we would like to work on this topic but maybe we don't have you know it's not us only it can benefit the whole champagne so we would like to work together on that specific topic I spent five years of my uh, earlier career at the CIVC working on like reeling cycles um, um, cork taints, you know um, bunch of things and um they it's you know it's 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 an excellent team and especially on environment they've been they've been working really hard and 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 you know leading the region to uh to be better yeah well you're a, a perfect person to ask this then why is it that you so rarely get a corked bottle of champagne actually you do as much as any other wine do you really you just don't notice it as much uh i'm I not sure i think the you know i mean we what Champagne has done, and, and, and I was happy to be part of, that, um, of those tests, is we've developed uh, tests, like control tests on the cork. So most of the houses, quite a few producers uh, do these tests where you use some corks, put them with water, taste them after a week, and that allows you to eliminate uh, really bad batches. So I think we don't have that much now in Champagne. Uh, but we, we, you know, we happen to stumble once in a while um, on a cork bottle. Maybe people are, they don't see it because they, you know, they, they, they ship. The, the thing with champagne, you have to realize that um, more often than not, uh, it's tasted in not the best conditions. Like people are standing up, they don't mm -hmm. have the right glass, they, they, you know, it's like kind of a party, a cocktail, and uh, they don't pay a lot of attention to what they have in the glass. I, you know, most often 
it's not the right condition. If you sit down, if you take like what we have here now, uh, some real wine glasses and take the time, like whether, you know, it's for lunch or dinner or, or like a city aperitif, then it's a different picture. And then you see the wine behind the bubbles. So that's something we would like to, you know, push more and, and develop more in the future. Obviously, sommelier, that's, you know, that's, that's their job to uh, help us to do that. And we are, uh, we are very grateful for their action. Yeah. Wow. Thank, I thank uh, you're welcome on the, ha- <laughs> the part of all sommeliers. Now, um, did you uh, did you want to taste the sure. champagne that's, that you brought here? So we brought the uh, the Dorina. Wow, 2004. Um, this is um, the current vintage of Dorina. It's 100 percent Chardonnay. This is a tribute to the monk uh, Don Thierry Ruinard, who was you know sort of the uh, um, inspirator um, of the house. Uh, the first vintage was made in 1959. We are missing that first vintage at the winery, so that's uh, something I'm saying here to anybody listening. If you ever find a bottle of Dorina 59, please contact the house and uh, you'll be very, very well treated, believe me. Wow. Um, from the beginning, this was made with uh, 100% Chardonnay grapes from Grand Cru Vineyards. Mm-hmm. And so um, we use two different regions. We use the Côte de Blanc region, um, 72% in that particular blend. But we also use Chardonnay from the Montagne de Reims, very close to uh, Reims, where the city, uh, where the winery is uh, located, and particularly the uh, Grand Cru of Cidry. That is very special, and it brings more, a bit more power and intensity uh, to the uh, to the final blend. And what years did this uh, Dom? Oh, can you guys hear that? <laughs> uh, that's awesome. What? So, what years did this? Uh, did your Dom live? Uh, uh, he uh, died in seventeen oh nine, I believe. So, uh, quite a few years before the winery got started. Um, but he was he was not a not a winemaker at all. He was a philosopher, writer. And uh, became a dom. You know, to become a dom, it's, which is dominus in, in Latin, you have to be a master at something. And, 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 and you know, this guy had a recognition of his uh, uh, monk uh, colleagues. And, uh, and, you know, that's how he got that, that special title. So, but he's the one who told his family, especially his uh, brother, that champagne uh, could be a business to look at at the future when the Ruinard family at the time was mostly into fabrics. Yes. And do, was he a contemporary of Dom Perignon? He was before? He was at the same time. Yes. And they actually met briefly at the Abbey of Auvillet, and that's where Don Ruinard uh, passed away. Uh, and so they are actually buried almost next to each other in the same abbey. That's crazy. Um, the 2004 vintage. Uh, is this your current release? On- it is a current release. Oh, wow. uh, a beautiful year. Um, a year that tended to be a bit shy uh, a few years before release when we, was, we were monitoring the wine. Uh, from the winery um, fairly large crop in Chardonnay but wines with a beautiful um, beautiful elegance more elegant than powerful I would say uh, compared to let's say 2002 which might be more of a famous vintage for uh, for Champagne but the uh, 2004 have that special um, sort of minerality uh, beautiful precision uh, when when 2002 is a bit bigger but I, I, I tend to like this kind of uh, purity uh, even better yeah, it's extraordinary. It's already so complex, um, especially considering you just you know just released it, but it does have eleven years of, of age on it. Uh, and I can I think I'm answering my own question as to why Somali is like it so much. It, just drinking this right now, it's so complex, um, great acidity, but not 
too much. It's no. just really integrated, um, and it it creeps up on you slowly. And, and I I love this wine. This is beautiful. Thanks. Well, you know, it's this is the the work of my predecessor. So that's what I li- I've been living with so far, and uh, and I I you know obviously um, extremely happy to benefit from such a good work. One okay. One last question I wanted to ask you. Uh, I, I should have asked it earlier on. Um, when so you you do a lot of work tasting Von Clair, right? This is the this is the moment actually. We've done a, a first round and we'll be doing a second round very soon. I've I have tried some Von Clair in my life and it is um, so insanely acidic um, and uh, not you know not terribly complex yet. Uh, I, it, it amazes me that you can taste these wines. How do you go about it? Do you have some uh, some system that you have? What are you looking for in the wine that you can taste it and blend the different Von Clairs together and then understand what it's going to be like after 8 to 10 years on the lees and eventually turn to that? How is how do you do that? I guess it's experience. I've been, I've been working in that field for 28 years myself. And, uh, yeah, you slowly, you know, work uh, year after year, and, 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 and that's, that's the way you learn. But... You have to understand that when we taste Van Clair, we would t- typically taste 20 or 25 at the same time. So we can compare them, you know, and we, it's, it's, it might seem difficult when you come from the outside and you only taste like four or five of them because, yeah, they do, they are acidic. They are pretty close. They're not very friendly to be, uh, to say the least. But when you, when you have, um, um, like 20 different samples in front of you, you can see the differences mm-hmm. maybe a bit better. And uh, we also have the memory. You know, we, we, we taste Van Clair three to four months a year. So, so that's, that's almost a daily task to, uh, to us. And, um, and when it comes to, let's say, Don Rinard, um, I would say it's almost the um, easiest blend to achieve because if the year is not there, if we're not super happy with the vintage, we just keep it. We just don't make it. And then if the year is great, then we will select... First, we will only select Grand Cru, so that's mm-hmm. you know already uh, sort of narrows the uh, selection, and then we will select among these the few tanks we've had. I mean, the, you know, maybe ten or twenty tanks of the of those Grand Cru. We will take the one that we think have the best potential, the best balance, and the best potential. And and honestly, maybe because it's our work, but we don't find that impossible to do. I mean, we actually find it pretty easy. Uh, the non-vintage, uh, on, on another hand. That requires a lot more work because you have to remember how it tasted the year before and you have to make it consistent from one vintage to another, from one year to another, from one harvest to another. So we blend reserve wines with the new wines. We have to work with different origin of the grapes and, and achieving consistency for the non-vintage uh, Ruinard Blanc de Blanc uh, takes you know, a lot more work from us. So in a way, we are more proud of the non-vintage, even though it's uh, less expensive than the Don Ruinard. Um, than the prestige cubit, but hey, we're happy to drink uh, Don Rinar every day. Huh? Uh, as um, I, if I could drink it every day, I'd be a very, very happy man. Uh, Frederick, thank you so much. It has been such a joy to have you on the show, um, and I really applaud your works for uh, your work in sustainability and 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 continuing the tradition of high quality Ruinar. I, I I continue to love these wines, and uh, it is really exciting to have you on the show. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much, and thanks to uh, you know all the some supporting us and um, if this is an invitation uh, if you if you uh, happen to come to France and be in Paris we are we are very um, very close to Paris it only takes like uh, 45 minutes by train to go there and uh, we have amazing sellers the only one that are classified as a historical monument of France 
And uh, as we say, it always tastes better at the source. Yeah. So 11 kilometers of cellars? Is eight kilometers, eight five kilometers. miles. Five miles of champagne underground. Yeah. And if you have a bottle of 1959 Dom Ruinart, you can you drink can bring everything it. You can that's bring in it. there. It's a t- <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you again so, much. You so much. It's been Cheers. such a pleasure. And thank you so much to our producer, Joy Morales, and uh, our engineer, Jack Inslee. You guys are the best. Thank you so much for putting this together. Thanks, guys, for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.